welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 299 for March 14th, 2016. It is Pie Day, in case anyone cares about that. 314, eat some pie. Uh, on today's show, we're talking about cleaning HVLP guns between coats, the width of a plain mouth, swirlies, and our feature topic, kids in the shop. All that and more coming it was up. Pie. No, 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 no. Maybe after the show. I was told there would be pie. <laughs> I was told there would be pie and punch, <laughs> but no, unfortunately, there isn't. Uh, so all that good stuff uh, coming up. But first, let's thank a few folks who helped us out with donations: Jeffrey Kibler, Matt Williams, and Jason Burr. Thank you so much. And uh, if you want to help out too, you can go to woodtalkshow.com. Look over in the side column; you'll see some donation links for one-time or small recurring donations. Every little bit helps out, and we always appreciate that sort of support. And when you do that, we're gonna read your name at the beginning of the show i'll butcher your last name if it's complicated but uh, it's all in good fun i don't mean anything by it i think we should do something more for these people like send them matt's offcuts when he uses his chainsaw mill that's not a bad idea yeah i mean i don't want to do anything for that i think we should just fly matt out there to hand deliver the offcuts this keeps getting better you get free bark (laughs) matt's gonna enjoy the travel matt's logs there you go i like that idea that's very good you go for a very high yield so that's pretty much all you'll be getting yeah sweet that's all right all right a box and send it (laughs) there you go all right let's move into what's on the bench Uh, I'll, i'll go first here uh cleaning organizing and wishing i had more wood storage uh, it's one of those things where I just don't, I have a couple of racks on the wall. I've got a couple, uh, little, little sort of dividers on the ground where I just lean up smaller, like four foot and less offcuts. And just the last few projects, the bigger projects, I tend to overbuy wood and I want to get the best grain that I can. So I wind up having a lot of extra stuff. So I've just got a bunch of cherry and walnut that I don't have the capacity for. So I've got to figure something else out. And, uh, the, the offsite, not offsite, but like detached sheds, and things kind of like what you have, Shannon, that's very attractive to me. And I, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make that happen, but I would like to because I, I don't I, I sometimes I give this stuff away or I'll, I'll box a bunch of them up or do a local pickup and say, hey, anybody wants to come over, you know, give me five bucks and you could take a truck full. It's not quite that much, but you could take an armful. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to give it away. I want it's it. Small truck. Like, I really want to keep this stuff, but it's becoming like a space problem. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it probably in your case, because your shop takes up a pretty decent footprint of your backyard, but yeah. um, a little garden shed, I mean, an eight by, or what is it? Uh, yeah, I guess mine's eight by eight. It's two two plywood sheets. Yeah. So it's an eight by eight uh, footprint. Uh, I built it myself just from the kit from Home Depot, but it's probably actually cheaper if you factor in the time to just have them deliver something. Sure, sure. Um, it's, I mean, then it's just a matter of throwing some racks on the walls, but then of course you're limited to to eight foot long boards which, which isn't is, too bad i mean no, it, not really a lot of this is not even the long stuff it's the offcuts. it's uh, things, yeah. th- things that are less than eight feet uh from the project and that's the stuff i'm having the harder time storing usually i'm pretty good if i buy 10 footers or even 14 footers um i don't buy more of those than i need it's just once mm-hmm. they're cut down to size then i wind up with this accumulation of extra material so hopefully yeah. i'll, I'll only- come I've only got one wall in my garden shed that's set up to hold the long boards and everything else is, is for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It's the four footers, the five footers, you know, things like that, that, uh, go on shelves and things. Nice. And no problems with weight on those walls. I don't know how those little no. sheds are constructed. No, but that's the other thing is the smaller the footprint. There's just, I mean, you can't put that much lumber on that wall. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and they're tied in directly to the studs. And, you right, know, right. so the whole wall, I suppose, could give in. But then, you know, you've got the the rafter assembly holding that together. I mean, it's 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 a well-constructed shed for yeah. a, a kit, if you will. <laughs> I have to take a look at it. That's uh, something I have to consider. It's getting to be a problem. I want What I really want is the David Marks, like, yeah. double-door giant storage unit. That would be fantastic. Yeah, but then you're going to develop a problem. <laughs> Yeah, we're like goldfish. Yeah. We'll just expand into our space. Once so. you have the ability to uh, to fill it, it, it won't take long. I probably won't be as uh, the, the specimens he has in there. Maybe a little bit beyond my budget, but <laughs> it's a it's a goal to to reach for. Uh, but anyway, that's been uh, my life for the last week. Uh, what about you, Matt? I've been working on the base moldings again. I got a couple of them all sanded because I'm doing the profile by hand, hand sanding that, mm-hmm. and then. I got some finish applied to a couple of them, so a few of them are ready to go in, and I started working on the casing molding as well this week. Nice. Yeah. That sounds right good. On. Very cool. Oh, yeah. Shannon, what about you? Uh, I got, like, no shop time this week. Loser. <laughs> um, I'm in the midst of uh, getting very close to a, a release of the new Hand Tool School site and discovered that there was a just a minor content uh kind of update that needed to happen letter was switching one block of code with another block of code but i had to do that let's see 124 lessons uh (laughs) 85 apprentice posts (laughs) Uh, i think 70 something live sessions i had to literally go in. there's no way to automate this i'd go in post by post copy paste you know change one little thing save and move on to the next one <laughs> nice yeah mind-numbing uh, site update but when i wasn't doing that i fired up sketchup and i'm working on uh, a couple of models for a new semester of the hand tool school um and i'm also finishing up updating i should say some models from existing stuff that i've already built in the mm-hmm. hand tool school i don't know if you guys are like that but you do a sketchup model and then you actually build it and you're like yeah that's not the same right right <laughs> i need, need to go back and retroactively design the sketchup model oh yeah do it all the time that's yeah. why i have version numbers on everything <laughs> right because right. they never stay the same very now, cool i actually have a question because uh hmm. matt you're, you're leaving something out because according to your instagram feed you were sawing up logs yesterday well you see the problem with this segment is it says what's on the bench so oh. i never know what to include are you taking you know? that like S- literally <laughs> so in other words what i should have said nothing <laughs> I was talking about yes, what's on my Nothing's on my desk. bench either. This would have been a very boring segment. <laughs> now, I, I actually have a question. I'm curious because I, I saw a, a video, a short video of Matt with his uh, chainsaw mill or Alaskan saw mill, whatever you want to call it, sawing up a log. And I wonder, um, what is it that's preventing you from going to like a wood miser? Uh, actually, probably money. <laughs> money. Yeah, money is that's a good, that's a good if, answer, yeah. And it wouldn't it be great if we all had this problem, but if money was no, wasn't the issue, is there something else that makes you, what, what I'm getting at is, is it kind of like a, like a take the tool to the wood versus wood to the tool type situation where, you know, um, sometimes it's, it's preferable to take the tool to the wood, um, in my than the case, other way around. cause I don't have any heavy machinery to move logs around. It's definitely uh, easier right. to take the tool to the wood, but. The way I have my my log yard set up, if you want to call it that, (laughs) um, I could put a mill right next to where I drop my logs and just roll them over onto the mill. Okay. Because don't uh, some of them come with an actual, like, log? um, Yeah, they'll lift it if you put the log right next to the mill, but you got to get it there. You You need a can hook. And don't you need, like, a pond that you can, like, roll it across? 
have like point in the right direction and then you can roll it there. Otherwise, like turning a log 90 degrees or something, <laughs> not the easy. I mean, you can do it. You can do like winches or come along and spin it around, but it becomes kind of a, a thing. But I, I obviously a sawmill of like a bandsaw mill would be a great addition to my collection here of tools. But a lot of, honestly, like a lot of the, what I do now with I when I do the chainsaw milling, it's really just more for fun for me to get out there and actually do some exercise and stand, instead of standing behind the controller of a, mm. of a wood miser. And at the same cool. time, a lot of stuff I do now is to encourage and kind of show people that you can do this in your own backyard. If you're only doing one log every now and then, it doesn't make sense to buy a sawmill. Right. Then you'll start getting like the mark haters will come into you like, oh, it'd be nice if, you know, you had a huge <laughs> backyard with a sawmill hundred like acres of forest and, and <laughs> wood miser. And, hey, you know, that's that's a good point as a as a, I don't know, public persona. Uh, there is something to be said. You get the norm haters showing up saying you got all the cool tools. I was just wondering because obviously it is a it is a part of your business you know, sawing up lumber and that's kind of, mm-hmm. you're the guy, you're the slab guy, you know, that, of us. And I just started thinking, cause I looked at Woodmiser the other day and it's, yeah, they're expensive, but they're not that expensive. Yeah. You know? It depends on like the, the thing that people always say is like they'll pay for themselves, but you have to have a pretty decent lumber business behind that. And I don't have like the space to put hundreds and hundreds of board feet of stuff I cut as well. And let me so, tell you, it's not nearly as glamorous as people think it is. It's, it's the lumber not, I mean, business, I mean. <laughs> the, it's the not? lumber I sell, it's not, the margins aren't, are, are all right, but I mean, you have to sell a lot of it, and a lot of people that come by, not that I have a problem with it, but they're only buying like two boards. Right. You know, it, it takes you a long time to sell through 500 board feet of lumber if you're only buying two boards. Yeesh, yeah. yeah. That that time, you know? I think the average profit margin is about a dollar a board foot. <laughs> yeah, that's what it usually works out to be. <laughs> Wow. All right. I was just, I was curious because I was thinking about that and uh, just thought, you know, I wonder why he doesn't have one. I know he goes to a guy who's got one and I was curious. Yeah. And that's something I'm thinking about building because I think that would be like, and now looking, going back to the whole like producing content thing, it would be a lot more, it'd be like a lot, it would be a lot of content for me to just build a sawmill because I would get a ton of content out of that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. So that's something I'm thinking about doing this year if I can put the money together to build one and it would be (laughs) a big one. Like bigger, more cut capacity than you could probably buy. So like the wood misers, they have like the LT15s, the wide ones. They're like they're ten thousand dollars, and you get thirty six inches of cut width. I'm hoping to do like a forty inch cut width for maybe like four thousand, and and have have a hydraulics on it as well. Damn. So we shall see. Oh, I can't wait to see it. That'll be fun. Seriously, good we'll stuff. We'll see if I say it's fun at, at the end or yeah, when I'm doing let, it. Let us know. Yeah, well, it'll sure. be fun no matter how it is for you. It's fun for us. <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter I, I, i've often thought the same thing like oh you know what maybe i'll timber frame my own shop that'd be cool i could get some great content out of that and then i can imagine you know uh-huh. a year and a half from now yeah, when it's exactly. still in progress oh this sucks yeah that's when i turn the camera off and call in a contractor and <laughs> oh look, look what i did overnight guys <laughs> magically it's just done how fast i can work <laughs> nice all right well let's get into uh what's new Got a couple things to share with you this one actually kind of has nothing to do with woodworking but it reminds me of a cnc so I thought it would be fun to post it. Now, I, I'm a big fan of pancakes. This household is a big fan of pancakes. My son almost, well, not every morning, but he's got a very limited uh, uh, selection of things he eats in the morning. And pancakes is one of them, so we make them a lot. This thing is called the Pancake Bot. And apparently this was a Kickstarter that succeeded. And they are looks like they should be in production by now, should have shipped by now. But it seems like you can only pre-order still. So I don't know what the story is. But think of a little tabletop CNC machine, kind of like an X-Carve. 
only this one works. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> how did X card become you, Vanderlist? That how did X card become like the the punching bag on this show? <laughs> Matt Vanderlist. Is it's got to be Matt. Uh, there you go, Matt. That one's for you. I know you're listening. You're probably on a plane right now, sleeping. Um, all right. So anyway, Pancake Bot. It basically has like the griddle in the middle, and this thing has a little uh, you know trough that you fill up on the top, and you program in different shapes and all kinds of cool stuff, and it just spits out the pancake mix, and you can make just about anything you want into a pancake, and it's pretty fantastic. Uh, it costs like three hundred bucks, which is kind of the most surprising oh, thing. Like, I, I just I don't know technologically, this stuff is just getting cheaper and cheaper. And I don't know who would, I, I guess lots of people clearly would buy one for this. As much as I love pancakes, I'm not about to drop $300 to just make my son laugh in the morning when I uh, make pancake think, wieners. Think of all the flat mats you could print. I could do lots of flat mats, though. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, so then that's that. It'd be a little weird, too, because you go like, I can make him a Mickey Mouse pancake. And it's like, oh, look, you're eating Mickey's ears. But when it becomes like a real lifelike mouse <laughs> and then he starts eating its ears, it takes on a whole different element. Uh, but anyway, this is a pretty cool device, but it just kind of shows you how this sort of thing is becoming more and more commonplace and, and why this type of technology is finding its way into woodworking and other areas of making as people are getting into 3D printers and CNC, and it just expands the possibilities and trickles down to a kitchen appliance, you know, which is, which is I think, pretty darn cool. So, What I found interesting is it was certainly about the pattern, but also the order because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the first batter that hits the griddle is going to be darker yeah. than the last bit Colored. of batter. Yep. And the shading, it was it was like sand shading with a, a griddle mm-hmm. and and batter. Yeah, it knows exactly where to put it so that it gets to the right temperature. And uh, yeah, it's good stuff. It looks pretty cool. I, I wouldn't mind if someone wants to send me one. That, that'd be great. But <laughs> I don't I don't know if I would pay for it. But uh, pretty cool stuff. All right. I don't know who put that. Cool. Chan, you probably put that in there, right? Yeah, this is me. Um, I spoke about Mortise and Tendon Magazine a couple episodes ago that it was soon to be coming out. Well, it is out now. It is the first issue is released. You can purchase it over at uh, mortiseandtendonmag.com. There's a whole shop there where you can buy stickers and shirts and magazines and posters and everything. But um, I have the first issue and it's outstanding. It's truly, it's much more like scientific journal Mm-hmm. then I, it's it's hard to even call it a magazine like that's, a good way to put ever, it. that's like the best way to put it i've ever heard so yeah far. well i mean it's similar to the society of american period furniture makers annual um magazine that comes out but this is this is like museum curators would be into this um i when i was in college did some uh studied some meteorology atmospheric physics and i subscribed to a scientific journal and it's like exactly the same. It's like the American Meteorological Society's annual journal. Um, very cool stuff. There's some great stuff in there on the Domini workshop at Winterthur. Some cool investigations into, uh, of I think it's a high boy if I remember correctly. But it's just extremely high quality. And it kind of goes back to this whole like, you know, we've made fun of them lately, like artis- artisanal toast and artisanal <laughs> jams and artisanal firewood. This is an artisanal magazine, but like for real. Um, very cool. So I urge you to check it out. Hantle School's a sponsor, by the way. So <laughs> Full disclosure. Um, <laughs> well, except, except except I paid money 
So it's not like they paid money for me to say that. Wait a minute. What? Now, I think it's very cool. And this is one of those arguments that you hear made when it comes to books disappearing, you know, in ebooks. And will, will actual physical books eventually just become this sort of collector's item thing so that people who really want it, they love that story, they want a copy of it. They're not just going to get a book. They're going to get a book that's bound perfectly on the best paper. And it's going to be this thing that you collect. And it feels like it's, it's interesting to see this happen with magazines because it isn't like people don't want to read woodworking magazines. It's just the current model in the woodworking magazine world is to get as many subscriptions as possible at all costs and cut costs everywhere possible. So it's, you know, they're all sort of following a similar trend. And it's very cool to see something like this pop up out of nowhere, seemingly, and produce this really super high quality product. And then at least it seems to me succeed as they're doing it. I would love to know how things are going for them. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Joshua has Joshua Klein. He's the editor, the guy behind the whole thing, has some really cool access to a lot of the museums and got some behind the scenes look. And it's stuff that you just you really wouldn't see anywhere else. Yeah. So, kudos, Joshua. You did a great job. Well, looks fantastic. I actually don't have a copy. I re- regret to say I should probably just order one. Probably should. You yeah. get some free shavings in the mail. Ooh, I oh, that's use, right. Always yeah. use more of those. Even that. Like, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> sorry to prolong this, but like, you know, your magazine, your magazine just comes like in the in the mailbox sometimes it's wrapped in clear plastic this was like in a box like what well, wasn't a box but it was you know an envelope wrapped in paper with wood shavings around it i mean it's totally the artisanal firewood thing but it's for real you mean so it doesn't arrive with like half the corners dog-eared and the right. back cover ripped yeah and there's no upc code on the front of it either covering exactly. part of the image yeah very nice that's good yeah, stuff cool All right, well, let's move into our kickback. This is where you guys give us some feedback on things we talked about in past shows. First one here is a voicemail kickback from Jim. Hi, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. This is Jim Wiley, otherwise known as the Village Handyman. A little kickback on adjusting the blade on a block rabbit plane. Um, uh, Your caller said to grind, Lee Nielsen said to grind the sides of the blade so that it's exactly the same width as the uh, plain body itself. A week ago, I was at a Lee Nielsen tool event in Pasadena, California, where the guys demonstrating the block rabbit plane and also the shoulder planes did not recommend doing that, but instead showed loosening the blade slightly, setting the plane on its side on a smooth surface, and and evening the blade with the side of the plane body, tightening it up, and you're nice and even, and as soon as you need to turn your your plane to cut on the other side, you just loosen the blade, lay it on its side on the other side, and do it again. So that's what I heard from the Lee Nielsen guys uh, on the road. Good luck, and thanks for a great show. Very good. Good to know. Uh, cool. Shen, you want to grab the next one? Yeah. This comes from Chris. He says, a big thank you to Mark for lifting a weight off my shoulders. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. My four-year-old daughter is in need of a larger-sized bed. Twin. Isn't that the smallest? Mm, Maybe she sleeps on like a... She's just gone from like little kid bed. Yeah, exactly. Never mind. Yeah, guy without (laughs) kids here. Um, (laughs) It's like a little doggy bed, Shannon. Yeah, if you're not familiar. <laughs> anyway, after my wife bought our eldest a bed and I had to fix it just to make it to go together <laughs> out of the box, I told her that I'd make the furniture from now on. 
well, her birthday is coming up and I planned on building her bed, but while going back and forth between a couple of different ideas and sharing your thoughts on not making children's furniture Hey-o. was the shove I needed to go ahead and order the one she really wanted. Nice. <laughs> you were so right that they grow out of those things so fast at this age. I was going to build her a twin size pencil post bed that she could use until college, but decided that it would be okay to wait a few years until she could appreciate my creation a bit more. She is the one that is always making her way into the shop to hang out with daddy so maybe she will be a participant when it's time to build her next bed thanks again there you go thank you chris the voice of reason that's what i like to think of myself as sorry matt yeah okay (laughs) now i love it i love when people do it i love when other people do it put it that way but for myself i just can't there's certain pieces of furniture i just can't envision making and putting that much effort into unless you're in a a family where there are a lot of kids maybe you could pass it down to relatives like our family we actually don't have a lot of children in our family just the circumstances with uh you know nicole and my brother and sister and our situation there's just not a lot of kids so if I had something, you know, that's heirloom quality, it would sit in a garage and no one would ever use it, which kind of sucks. So, I mean, different family situations, I could see it could be justifiable. Well, you know, in the interest of, of you know, the protective father and his daughter, you know, keep her in that toddler bed as long as possible because that'll really wreak havoc on her social life. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. <laughs> uh, nice. Matt, you want to grab the next one? Why is that like oh, always go, go into my thing after I'm laughing? Uh, well, that kind of happens all the time. You're just a giggly you're, kind You're of laughing guy. all the time, so, you know. I should probably get over that by now. All right, so <laughs> next one is from Oscar. It says, okay, Shannon, where did you get that crystal ball and how can I get one? Gumball machine. You got Sweet. any uh, affiliate links for that crystal ball there, Shannon, I can post? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is Oscar from episode 297 with the question about planting pine two-by-fours. I finally got the chance to try waxing the bed and it worked like a charm. As for the rest of you wise monkeys. <laughs> what? How what? dare he? I let the handle guy answer questions about power tools. Heck yeah. <laughs> I'd like, I'd give you a piece of my mind if I wasn't so busy planning two by fours with the unplugged toaster. <laughs> the <laughs> nice. poker table project was DeWalt's first outing, which is why it was so perplexing. I'm pretty sure I planned Sapili, pretty sure since then and had no problem. The same problem returned when I tried to plane pine again. So I chalked it up to being pine to pine being the issue. Thanks, dudes, and keep up the good work. All right. Every once in a blue moon, we get one right. Once in a while. Once in a yeah. while. Toaster planner. I'm just picturing someone trying to shove a board through a toaster now. Yeah. I'd mm-hmm. shove a board of uh, bread through my toaster, little tiny boards. Um, Artisanal toast only, though. Yeah, I'm waiting for my Mortis and Tenon Magazine issue order to go through, and I'm looking at a spinny thing, and it's making me nervous because it's been spinning for like 40 seconds. Uh oh. Uh oh. You know what? They found out that I'm a power tool user, and he's like, no, <laughs> no, he can't have it. All right. So, speaking of kids, we brought up kids a couple times today on the show, and our feature topic has to do with children. And it's uh, inspired from an email from James, who wrote in and <laughs> says, Hey guys, I have a four-year-old son who's about the same age as Mark's son and works in the shop with me almost nightly. Now, we do live in a calda, he says calda whack, (laughs) in a very nice subdivision, and my son has made a friend with one of my neighbors whose son is six years old. The neighbor's kid would come over a few times a week and work in the shop with my son, drilling holes in scrap wood or using a handsaw to cut out different shapes. This was always supervised by me, and they never used a power tool except for a drill and impact driver. Well, once the neighbor kid mom, the neighbor kid's mom found out what danger, quote-unquote, I had put her son in, he's no longer allowed to visit the house. I tried to explain to his mother it was all supervised, and I would never allow her son to use a power tool that I thought he could get hurt on, but it went in one ear and out the other. 
but now I'm starting to wonder if I'm really putting my son in danger and should I have him in the shop at all? How much do you think I should allow a kid to do in the shop? Is a drill too much? Thanks, guys. He's in uh, Colorado. I thought this was incredibly compelling. Uh, obviously, as a parent, this is something I think about with my own child. But there are two two issues at, at war here. You have to you have to look at the, both sides. Um, this is deciding what's right for someone else's kid and deciding what's <laughs> right for your kid. Those are two very different questions. Uh, so here's the thing. Shannon doesn't have children, but he has dealt with children in the context of I demonstrating. I what to do with others' kids. Yes, he, he dishes out <laughs> advice to other parents, uh, which is, you know, parents love that. Uh, no, but he, he does work around kids all the time with uh, the Stepping Stone Museum and, and, you know, has that sort of experience to offer. Uh, you know, Matt's got a very little one who's not in the shop yet, but I'm sure your mind is on this type of thing, mm-hmm. Matt. And I'm at the point now where my son does go in the shop, but he's just now starting to show enough of an interest to actually build things. So I'm thinking about this as well. All right, so here's the thing. The thing that bugs me about this is we're in that sort of world now where the whole bubble wrapping of society that that's happening where there was a day where if, you know, a neighbor kid strolled into the the neighbor's house and he's a woodworker and they learned something, you'd be like, oh, cool, look, he's learning a skill. Now it's like, oh, great, you're trying to kill my son. Right. You know, it's like this fear that uh, of the stranger danger and all these other things. So I don't want to get too, you know, political or, you know, focus too much on our society's issues because I, I have a very fundamental problem with that in general. But the reality is this is the society we live in. So there's a huge issue when another person's child comes into your house and you're now making decisions as to what's safe enough for them. So I think the major mistake that, that James made here was that before that kid touched anything in that shop, I would have gone to the parent and asked if this was okay. Um, I don't think you are just the way things are today. You cannot make that decision for that kid because the reality is you need to look at like what stage of life your child is in. You know your child because you spend so much time with them. Do you know that child that well to know what they're capable of doing or what they might do with a power drill when your your head happens to be turned or you're looking at your phone or some, you know, one second, all it takes is for that kid to not realize what that does when he puts that drill against your son's leg. I mean, stupid things like that, but they happen. Uh, so, so the whole thing about the other person's kid, that's, that's really tricky. And I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole unless I talked uh, to the neighbor and made sure it was totally cool. Um, so if you guys were in this situation, let's go to, uh, let's go to Matt. If you're in this situation, neighbor kid, you know, who you've seen around, he plays with your child, strolls in and wants to participate. You know, would you now, of course, we've read this and now this is fresh in your mind. But what do you think you might have done prior to reading this? Would you invite them in? How, how would you handle that? I guess I would I kind of come with the same same perspective as you do, Mark. It would be um, I would definitely go and talk to that parent if I wasn't already familiar with that that person already. Yeah. You know, if it if it's some neighbor kid, I probably at least in my neighborhood, we're all pretty you know tight knit. So I probably know their their parents already. So maybe I already. Maybe they already mentioned that it'd be really cool for my son to come over and try something someday. Right. So that might, you know, that's kind of a an okay thing there. But yeah, you really you can't. That you nailed it though. It's like the the light the world we live in right now is people are so concerned with what's what their kids are doing, and it's just it's it's weird. But you know that's that's life, and <laughs> unfortunately, you got to kind of ask permission for these things now. I mean, for my own son, I I would have no problem being out there with him and supervising him doing these things because i remember when i was like six a thing that spun stuff was just like the best thing in the world 
Right. I could probably sit there <laughs> drilling, you know, putting screws in, backing them out, putting them in, Heck backing yeah. them out. That's all an day. all that's an all day event. I mean, that's a great way to keep your kid occupied for a few hours. Just give them a block of wood and a screw and a, and a drill. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so <laughs> let me let me flip the script on you. What if it was the neighbor? And let's let's actually ask Shannon this. What if you had a child? What if little Kenny <laughs> is running around? <laughs> And uh, the neighbor invites him in to do something like this without your knowledge. What what would your reaction to that be? See, and this is the other social issue here that I know we don't want to proselytize here. But what what I object to in the first issue is that the unsupervised child in the first place. And now suddenly I'm the one who's supposed to supervise your child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if, if in that first situation, I would go talk to the parents and say, Hey, why don't you dad or mom come over? What, what's the, the current terminology? Let's set a play date, a play date you know, in my garage where both of you come over and we can talk about this and that where then maybe that can graduate into, Hey, some, supervised with only me, you know, around. Yeah, yeah. And this is where relating to the the second situation where if, you know, my kid were to wander in somewhere, I don't know how comfortable I would be without being there first with that child. Yeah. Like I know I wouldn't be comfortable and it has nothing to do, or maybe it does have something to do with the person who owns that shop. Um, you know, if I know them really, really well, that might be a different story, but you know, Short of family, I think I would still be like, look, I need to be there um, at least the first time so I can see what's going on. And then if, you know, the, if, if little Kenny's like, ooh, I want to drill more holes or in his case, I want to dig more holes, um, it would be, okay, cool. You know, yeah. can he come over for such and such a time? But I am very conscious of parents who drop off the kid. <laughs> Yeah, I've been in that on the other end of that so many times that I've always told myself that, you know, if I'm ever in that situation, I'm not going to just drop off my kid at the pool and let the lifeguard take care of him all day. Yeah. Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> right, right. You know, or drop the kid off at the museum, you know, and go off and drink beer over at the cider stall while my kid is here playing with an egg beater. You know, it, so, yeah. yeah, it has it has little to do with who's running the shop and more to do with I wouldn't trust anybody, frankly. You know, maybe yeah. I'm the bubble wrap person, but why well, it's know. hard for us to not be affected by that. If you're, you know, if you want to be, I guess, a responsible parent in today's without, you know, receiving some sort of crazy judgment, um, you know, from some guy working at the stepping stone museum, uh, <laughs> you need, you need to be present and you need to be aware of where your child is at all times. Cause there's kind of two sides to this, that clearly the kid was able to wander around without the parent, which today that's actually pretty good. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, good in the sense of going counter counter to what our culture is telling us these days. I like to hear that a six year old can wander around the cul-de-sac and, and go see what the neighbors are doing. I think the problem is the neighbor just didn't realize that where the kid was going has. I mean, look at the shop as like we think of it in a, as a controlled environment. And if we're there to supervise, it's a controlled environment. But there's nothing you can do to change the fact that if an accident's going to happen, there's a higher incidence of accidents in a shop and the things that happen when an accident occurs are more dangerous than them just yeah. like playing in the front yard. So, and, and there's supervision and then there's workshop supervision. Yeah. I mean, my shop, there's not a power tool in there, but oh my God, there is so much sharp stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like how know, many different ways could a in, child lacerate in, themselves in your shop? Right. Yeah. You know, within reach of a toddler, yeah. you know, it's not like I, I can't put up that much stuff. So supervising one kid would be a full-time job. Like I'm always surprised at, 
Um, you know, the, the guys like, who is it, James, who says, you know, his son works with him in the shop. I'm always surprised that they can actually get anything done while their child's in there with them. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take more than 90% of their attention on that child. Now add another child to the mix. Holy crap. Yeah. And someone, <laughs> someone else's child at that. Uh, and that's the thing. I'm just now getting to a point where my son can come in the shop and actually focus on a task. Now I'm not getting anything done, but if my son is in the shop, <laughs> I don't expect to work while my son is in the shop. If he's in there, we're there together. And that's the reason we're there. And maybe someday he'll help me with my project and maybe I'll go slower, but we'll get something done. But the only reason I'm in there with a four-year-old is because we're taking two blocks of wood and nailing them together and attaching wheels to them to make a car. I've seen your Facebook feed. The only reason you're there is just to film it. That's true. That's all I really do is this funny, funny videos of my son in the shop. Right. Um, So uh, Matt, let me ask you this. When, uh, when do you think you'll be able to get uh, your son in there and what, what kind of things are you looking for to determine? Because I have this problem now to determine what he's actually ready to handle. So, I mean, do you think you have any, any sort of plan in place for how you're going to determine when he could pick up a drill? You know what? I have no idea because I haven't been through that thing as a parent yet. So I can't say like, this is probably the age it will be. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he's out there already, but he can't really, you know, do a whole lot. He can kind of crawl, but I don't let him do that on the dirty floor. <laughs> you should just attach a swifter to his kneecaps. I've, and oh God, I've thought about that so much because when he crawls around the house, like this would be so much more effective. <laughs> it's like a baby uh, right now. A baby Roomba. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I think it's just like kind of watching your kids. Like you said, you, you know, your kids the best because you spend the most time with them. And when you think that they can actually like handle things in a safe way, because Obviously, a lot of the child's development is actually developing those motor skills to be able to like swing a hammer without smacking them in the face yeah. as they mm-hmm. bring it back, right? So I'm still you working know, on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll get there one day, Sean. You never really grew out of that. Keep practicing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Just when, when, they, when I feel like they have enough motor skills to do what they want to do out there to make it interesting for them because yeah. at the same time, you want to just bring them out there and have them do something that's so so boring for them because they want to be doing something else, but they, you can't let them do that thing they want to do because it's not safe for them. So maybe you have to like hold the drill for them and they can yeah. push the button or something. But you know, I think with that, it's like a play that as you go kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, when I watch my son and he can't even color in the lines or stay on the paper <laughs> and he's drawing on the dining room table. Cause I'm like, no, stay on the paper, buddy. And he goes, whoop, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to hand that kid a chisel. Might yeah. not, you know, or a pair of scissors. That might not be a, a good idea. Um, but it could yeah. be another window castle. He never stayed inside the line. That's true. Maybe I should encourage that sort of thing. I'll put <laughs> some cardboard uh, cardboard down next time. But yeah, I mean, the thing for me is I watch uh, watch him on the playground. And there has been an evolution as he gets more and more coordinated that I'm more comfortable staying further and further away. Um, but there have been times where I see other people who just have a different sensibility than I do. They're, you know, flicking away on their phone and doing something, paying zero attention. Their child is less coordinated than mine, much smaller than <laughs> mine. And the kid's like trying to, to climb up a rock wall. And I'm just like, wow, I want to go save your child right now. And, <laughs> and I'm the paranoid one in that case, you know, but uh, it's, it's, it's all on a scale and everybody's got a different sensibility. So you got to make the right choice for, for your kid. You know what they're competent in. So yeah, there's no right answer for that. So uh, what happens if, you know, not without d- divulging too much personal stuff, but I'm sure people have wondered what happens if it's an adopted child? Do you, do you like look at it differently? <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Controversy out there, you know, um, Should I, you know, if, if Heather and I adopt somebody, do we, do we, pay more attention or less attention or do we just let the child go anywhere we want i'm just gonna say this once you adopt a kid 
my guess is there is absolutely zero difference other than genetics <laughs> in your feelings uh, between that and a biological child. Um, okay. And I'm, I shouldn't have to say this people, but I'm joking. Yes. Okay. And I'm just Don't covering in the kickback. I'm trying to cover our butts because <laughs> that's a, that's a sensitive thing. Uh, better you than me. All right. Well, now's a great time to stop talking about this and start talking about one of our sponsors, Harry's. Shaving and your children. Shaving your children. You know, shaving your children. <laughs> yes, that, that might not be the best thing to do. But, you know, if they're adopted, go ahead and shave them. Who That's cares, right? right? <laughs> Make them hairless. It's much better that way. Uh, anyway, so I was thinking about this. Uh, the people who would be best to judge a razor are probably woodworkers, if you think about it, right? Um, I'm thinking Harry's blades are kind of like uh, a blade that's been sharpened, I don't know what, 20,000 grit, given to Shannon, and then he hones that sucker on his horse butt, right? <laughs> That's the level of sharpness we're talking about here. And uh, yeah, I think we're in a good position to judge a clean shave versus a non-clean shave. Um, just It just occurred to me earlier. It makes sense that they advertise. Um, just to let you know, Harry's is the only shaving company that has both amazing quality and low prices. They feature German-engineered five-blade cartridges, very sharp ones, as I mentioned before, uh, that produce a close, comfortable shave, no cuts or burns. Quality is guaranteed, and they'll give you a full refund if you're not happy. They cut out the middleman, so you get to take advantage of the factory direct prices, about half the price of the competition, and everything is shipped right to your door. Over a million guys have already made the switch, and thousands more switch every day. Why pay 32 bucks for an 8-pack of blades when you can get them for half price at harrys.com? I don't know why in the middle of reading this I always feel like I need to burp. <laughs> it's happened like the last three or four times. Sorry, Harry's. I'm gazy. Uh, the Harry Starter Set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Now, Harry's doesn't like to discount because their prices are already pretty low, but we've worked out a special offer for you guys. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code WOODTALK. It's all one word, WOODTALK. Stop overpaying for a great shave. I command you. You have to stop. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code WOODTALK at checkout, and you will be hooked up like Shannon is. Nice and smooth, looking good. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. So smooth. Thank you very much, Harrys. We appreciate it. Let's move into our voicemail. Hold on. It's hiding behind these other windows here. Where are you? Hello. Okay, this one is from Ryan. He's got a question about uh, some router tear-out. Hey, Mark, Matt, Shannon. This is Ryan in Baltimore. Uh, Love the podcast. I've called in once before. You gave me some advice about a gaming table. I really appreciated it. Um, I had another question for you. I'm using a trim router to do a roundover on pieces of uh, 2x4 and 4x4. And periodically, every now and again, as I'm moving the router down, it will just kind of start to splinter and tear out uh, more material than I want. I'm wondering if this is a side effect of using a dull bit or moving too quickly, or something else I haven't considered altogether. Uh, appreciate the uh, advice you might have on it. Uh, love the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, so pretty basic question here. You're routing. You're getting some tear out. I think you pointed out two of the reasons, right? The bit might not be sharp enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, speed might be a problem. Any other issues you guys think would uh, give them a little bit of tear out problem? Well, grain direction. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. The wood, wood species. I know some some things that I've routed just you're going along and it's not one that you would expect to tear out. And as you're moving along, you just hear that zing that lets you know you, you pulled a splinter into the pit and you're just like, ah, <laughs> crap. Uh, and that just happens on some boards and some species. So that, that could be a factor as well. Um, but I yeah, think if he's, cut, how much cut he's taking all yeah, at once, how big of a round over it is. Right. 
So you may want to sneak up on it, maybe not take the whole thing in one bite. Uh, that's the first thing I do is if I'm having a, a even before I slow down too much, because you slow down too much, then you start to get burning. Um, so if I am getting tear out, the first thing I do is back off on the cut a little bit and uh, maybe take it in two to three passes and work my way down. Uh, right. Pretty uh, simple stuff there. You guys have anything to add before I move on? Climb cut, maybe, if you uh, have a problem with it. If you're so inclined to mm-hmm. climb cut. That's not a bad idea. If you're so inclined, grab go to hold those handles and go for a ride. <laughs> and don't let go. <laughs> or, or it'll dance on your palm like it did for uh, Mr. V- Matt Vanderlist. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> that was a classic. Uh, all right. Let's move into our email. I got one here from, I guess the person's name is Cricket. Cricket? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I admitted, I'm admittedly new to the spraying game and wanted to know what your process is for spraying between coats. As I would only be spraying water-based products, I wanted to know if you bother to clean out the gun, needle, canister, etc. between coats or let it sit there until you apply your next coat. My initial thought would be that water... Uh, would be that thin water-based coats would dry quickly and thus could dry inside the needle if it wasn't cleaned out. So how do you guys tackle this in the most efficient way without creating more work? Uh, Okay, well, for me, I can only speak for myself, and I may not even do things by the book properly. I do things in the way that I think makes the most sense for me and my brand of laziness. And generally speaking, I do not clean the gun out between sprays. That sounds stupid. Um, (laughs) Like, it takes all of what makes spraying great and like just poops on it. So for me, I will not change it between. I may, depends on how my week is going. Uh, I may change it before the overnight. Uh, but there's a lot of times where I haven't even done that. So what usually happens with water-based, um, it doesn't typically dry right away in that uh, in, in the needle or anything like that. What you'll get is a little dry cap on the tip of the needle that all you have to do is get your fingernail in there and kind of flake it off. And it's like that skin on soup. Yeah, exactly. You get a little bit of a little bit of skin there. Um, you'll definitely want to mix what's in the can. You know, make sure that's uh, nice and mixed up. And there may be a little bit of dried residue, but I've never found it to be enough to actually cause me a problem or to be a problem for the subsequent cleaning when it does occur. Um, I will not go more than two days. You know, so I'll do maybe one overnight if I'm feeling lazy. The next day, that gun's getting cleaned at some point in the process. But I definitely am not cleaning the gun between coats. That sounds crazy to me, and I'm sure some people do it. Maybe by the books, it's the right way to do it. But, uh, you know, being more of a realist, that's not going to happen in, in my shop. Uh, did you guys, I don't know how much you either of you spray. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of a time when I've needed to go overnight. I mean, that was the whole idea to get the HPLP, yeah, right? Get it done yeah. put six coats on and like To me, it's hours. only if there's a substantial project where I have to coat one side, then I've got to coat the other mm-hmm. side and I'm waiting for those to dry. And there's a lot of parts. That's where just the sheer workload of it. And you get, if you're right. sanding between coats, then you got to wait for that process. So sometimes it can, you can push it to a two day process. Yeah. I mean, I've only ever sprayed water-based. Um, well, that's true. I'm not sure. I sprayed shellac once, but I mean, in both instances, they're like super fast drying. So yeah, exactly. it's never really been an issue to have to even think about going overnight. Oh yeah. I've only sprayed lacquer and kind of the same thing as I left it in the gun because I'm coming back to spray it and like, I don't know, half hour or whatever. Yeah, and lacquer is even more forgiving. Uh, it's going to redissolve itself, and there's no no problems there. Like they run some lacquer thinner through there, and you're good to go. Right. Cool beans. All right, Matt, you're right. up. Next one is from John. He says, I've been having trouble with with my random orbit sander leaving swirls on my finished projects. I usually start with 80-grit sandpaper before I go to 120 and then 220. I usually don't have the marks until my finish is applied. Even when I'm extra careful, there are still a few of those sander swirls haunting me on my finished projects. What should I do? So the first thing that kind of jumped out at me is that he's going from 120 to 220 in one jump like that. 
And I don't know if 220 really has enough grit to really get rid of the scratches from 120. So I'm thinking that part of the thing you're seeing is the remaining scratches from the 120 that haven't been cleaned up by the 220. So it's possible maybe throw an intermediate grit in there, maybe 150 or 180 to kind of even things out a little bit as you go. Um, another thing, just generally speaking, as far as um, random orbit swirls, you know, don't push on the sander, kind of let the sander's weight do its own job. And uh, if you haven't looked up to a shop vac, you could see the vacuum actually sucking the sander down to the work and causing kind of the same effect as you pushing down on it. So I don't know, do you have any other ideas there, Mark or Shannon, on swirlies? Uh, that's for me, that's about it. I mean, those are the things that yeah. I do to, to prevent it is, you know, sand more with, uh, intermediate grits. Like you talked about. Um, the other thing you might do, eh, sometimes it depends. Cause you, you even like, let's say he's doing the hard pressing thing at 80 mm-hmm. and then he does the intermediate grits. So it's not going to help him, you know, at 180, 220, if those are 80 grit swirls. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. where you kind of have to find out first, where is the swirl coming from and address it then? Um, because if it is a later stage swirlies, uh, all, you know, one thing that's really helpful is to just grab a block uh, of sandpaper and a block and just kind of go by hand with the grain. Um, and instead of having circular patterns, you're now putting straight lines in and that could also help as well. Or scrape, you know, get a card scraper, yeah. uh, cabinet scraper and just be done with it. Um, you do that and then skip right to your 180, 220. And man, that's a great way to avoid uh, sanding swirls. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think you're right, Mark. That the swirls generally are from the lower grits. Yeah. Because um, in what Matt just said, you know, the 220 doesn't really have that much, you know, to to produce swirls. It's usually something else. Yep. And you don't see it because you kind of put a coat of swirls over top of the the initial swirl, you know, and the the dust gets really fine, and then you kind of wipe it down and put a coat of finish on, and suddenly that like really deep swirl pops out. Yep. Because it's yeah. 80 grit something. So. And the other thing you, that he could do is wipe it down with some thinner or water or whatever he's planning on using for the finished coat, the thinner, like some mineral spirits or whatever, so you can kind of get a preview of if there's any problems on the surface. I know I do that a lot when I'm, I'm going to do my finish, so I can make sure that I got that thing as finished prepped as possible so I don't have any surprises when I put that whatever my top coat is on. Yeah. Um, Matt, did you mention um, movement speed of the sander? I do not believe so. Okay, so that's, that's another thing to keep in mind. A lot of times you're doing that 80 grit, you're moving quickly, you're zipping your hand. You know, if you ever watch Norm use a random orbit sander, <laughs> don't do that. It's uh, all over the place. Yeah, he's like, uh, you know, it's just, it's too fast. Uh, think in terms about like an inch per second. Uh, if you can go at that slow speed, you're letting the sander do the whole process that it needs to do to not create those swirls. So if you're going nice and slow, especially on those lower grits, you're not putting extra pressure and you don't have your vacuum set for too much suction, that's going to give you the formula you need to, to hopefully end up with no swirls. But man, I'll tell you, get to know your card scraper because if you can do that, you could skip your 80, your 120, your maybe your 150, just jump to that 220 sanding and you just have a lot fewer finishing issues that way. Yes, now, nice. I have a question. <clears throat> what does, and this is a general question and shows my lack of use of a sander lately. <laughs> what is the variable speed supposed to do for you? On the sander? Yeah. Nah, well, most of us, I would gather, probably don't even use it. Right, exactly. The only time well, I've I mean, used it is during buffing operations. If I have a really high grit paper on there or like a Festool, um, the, the foam abrasive pads, there are mm-hmm. just times where I don't want to be at full speed because I'm actually doing a buffing out process. Um, so that is the only time I've ever changed the variable speed on a sander. I turn mine down on the higher grits just because I think it, I feel like it puts less swirls into it or I have less chance of getting swirls in there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I have the ETS-155, so it has a bigger stroke anyway. Okay. So I think it has a higher likelihood of putting swirls in to begin with. But that's just that one sander in general. Well, I imagine as you're moving the sander, if you start to feel odd vibration, you might play with the dial a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of dial it in to try to get it to a point where it's, you could feel it yeah. coasting nice and smooth on the surface. Down like all the way. It's like what, one to six. I put it to maybe like four and a half. Right, right. Maybe. I feel like I read that somewhere in a previous life that, you know, messing with the speed could help a little bit. But like you said, Mark, I've never touched it. I just turn it, you know, and turn it up and okay, here we go. It's to me, it's one of those nitpicky things. I'm sure there are people who make use of it and, and get really picky about it, but I've never, I've never really messed with it and it's never been a problem for me. Right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, this next email comes from Chris and he says, how wide should my mouth be? Well, just let that hang depends out on what you're putting in bit. there. <laughs> I've been doing more hand tool work and I have a question regarding how wide the mouth on my hand plane should be. I have planes with adjustable mouth, non-adjustable, and even a Scott Meek wooden plane. Some planes I can't understand how to even adjust the opening. It's something I just don't get. Help me, fellas. Well, the planes that you can't understand how to adjust the opening, it's probably because they're not adjustable. <laughs> Just just kind of throw that out there. Generally, if they're adjustable, it's pretty obvious. You mm-hmm. turn a knob and you slide it back and forth. If you can't figure out how to do it, then it's not adjustable. Um, I shouldn't say that, I suppose. Like in a, in a Scott Meek plane, you know, if we're talking about a smoother, it's not really meant to be adjusted. Um, so the rule of thumb you should look at is the mouth should be wider than maybe only slightly wider than the shaving thickness you intend to take. So, you know, on a smoothing plane where you're taking, you know, thou, thou and a half, maybe two thousands of an inch thick shavings, your mouth should be set only, you know, a half a thou wider than that because the, the tightness or looseness of the mouth is one of the things that can really help control tear out. And with the smoothing plane, that's what we want, right? A tear-out-free surface. The more you can tighten up on that, close up that mouth, the more downward pressure you have on the wood holding the fibers in place and preventing them from lifting and tearing out. So you want that mouth to be as tight as you possibly can be for the shaving you're taking. So a jack plane, joiner plane, or even up into like a four plane or scrub plane where you're taking massive chips, you know, that could be wide open because you're taking 16th of an inch chips out of there. So your mouth's got to be, you know, 330 seconds wide. Um, And that's why we've got, you know, modern jack planes with an adjustable mouth because you can set them up to do everything from four plane work, like thickness planer work, all the way down to smooth plane work. Um, For a traditional plane or plane without an adjustable mouth, you can move the frog. That's the thing that the blade sits on. You can move that forward and back. Um, you have to take the blade out and you have to loosen up the screws that attach the frog to the body. And then behind the frog, below the adjustment wheel, there is another bolt there that has a collar on it. And you can actually move that forward with a screwdriver and it will shift the entire frog forward. That's moving the blade forward in the in the sole and, and tightening up the mouth for all intents and purposes. But it's kind of cumbersome. You know, you got to take the blade out. You got to loosen up two screws, move something back tighten up those two screws, put the blade back in, lock it in place. Is that right? And if you didn't get it right, then you got to do it all over again. So it gets to be a little annoying to the point where I, I don't do that. I usually set, you know, my plane for a use. And, you know, if I want another use, I'll, you know, hit eBay and go buy another plane and set that up for a separate use. (laughs) Um, for wooden planes, a lot of makers will actually make it to the point where the mouth is too tight. 
Um, and they will let you adjust it using a file. And you're just opening up that mouth with just light strokes of a file or float, if you will. I would prefer to use a, a file because it's much less aggressive and there's better chance of you not screwing up and going too far. Um, I know I've ordered planes from Great Britain from Phil Edwards of Philly Planes before, and he specifically left it tight because he's shipping it from across the pond to here. And it's like, you know, it's going to happen. You know, that plane is probably going to move a little bit. Let me kind of dial in that mouth opening later. A lot of plane makers, that's part of that process. That's the last thing you do is touch that mouth. After you've got everything set, the wedge is right, everything's good. Essentially, the plane is is almost functional. It's just the mouth is too tight. And they'll come in, pick, take a couple passes of the file, and open that up. Obviously, though, once you take that wood off, you can't put it back on. So the only way to adjust uh, a wooden plane that's mouth is too wide is by installing a patch, often called the Dutchman. And if you look at really old wooden planes, you'll see a little inlaid patch on the bottom where somebody's come in and closed up the mouth again to the point where it's too tight and then opened it up slowly with a file from there. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I had that's no good. idea. That's very cool. Every now and then I say something interesting. Insightful. I today. You should, you should work in a museum. I should. <laughs> Very cool. Right. Only I could find one that paid me. That would be good. <laughs> Do any of them pay? <laughs> I don't think so. They pay cool. one person and then everybody else volunteers. Very cool. All right. Well, if you want to pay us, you can. Ha! <laughs> Beautiful. Like that segue? Uh, just go to wotalkshow.com. Look over in the side column and you'll see some of those donation links. And if you send us a few bucks, we will read your name at the top of the show. You can go to the Wood Whisperer store at twwstore.com. And there are beautiful blue Wood Talk t-shirts. They're very nice looking. I actually am very fond of the, the design. John Funk did a, a killer job with those. Uh, and if you want to, you can leave us an iTunes review. This costs you nothing. Just go into iTunes. Well, you have to deal with the iTunes store. That kind of sucks. But yeah, there's a little cost there. Yeah. Once you're there, just find us in the store. Click on ratings and reviews and give us a five-star rating if you wouldn't mind. Uh, got a few of them here. Uh, Wrenches and Planes, Viroco 28, Baserman, and Steve's T-shirts. These are really good ones today. Uh, Steve says, even without their Taco Fanatic, these guys are great. They have a Laughing Lumberjack, a Power Tool Pro, and a Cordless Craftsman uh, covering every topic you could think of. But if they don't cover your desired topic, the best part is they will answer your questions. Though Mark may say you can Google it. (laughs) But seriously, you can. Uh, This podcast is full of laughs and woodworking knowledge. Subscribe and join the gang. So thank you very much. And if you leave a review, you got a chance of us reading it directly on the show. And Especially sh- if you use alliteration. That's that's awesome. True that. Uh, Shannon, help you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. Fair enough. If you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions, there are many, many ways to contact us. Mm-hmm. Leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Woodtalk Online. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180 or use our fancy contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact. Finally, you can go to Facebook the Facebook, and leave a comment on the Wood Talk Facebook page. Finally, if you're looking for show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, find them at our website at woodtalkshow.com and then check out our other sites. Those other ones. Yeah, Yeah. I don't feel like reading that again. They're easy enough to find. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See you, bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.